uh, I guess it was around last November, I got a request from this young lady who um, had been uh, impacted by a book I had written called Is God to Blame? And it was particularly helpful at this period of time in life where she was going through her and her husband uh, were having their son, Henry, die. And he was really approaching the end, and so she asked if I would do a, a little video clip uh, for the memorial service. And so I called her, and I talked with her a little bit, heard her story, and just kind of wanted to get to know her some. And even as I was initially talking with her, I just sensed some kind of anointing on this young woman. I even asked her, I said, have you been a public speaker or a writer or something? I'm getting something, some sense that you're a communicator. Turns out that actually she uh, was working on a novel. And um, long story short is this. I asked her, uh, we had a conference up here some months ago here at the church, uh, sponsored by Renew, on on the, the open view of God. And I asked her if she would give her testimony. She was going to attend this conference anyways. And I just asked, would you share your testimony at this conference? And it was, it was the best thing that happened at the conference. It was powerful. Uh, and then I asked her after that, would you share that with our congregation at some point? Because you've got a story to tell and God is on it. And God is going to use this story, I believe, to heal, not just at Woodland Hills, but heal thousands of people, and maybe more than that, uh, way beyond our walls. And um, she agreed to that. And so tonight we are very honored and privileged to have with us Jessica Kelly. Would you give her a warm Woodland Hills welcome? Thank you, guys, and I'm so thankful for that introduction from Greg. It is a tremendous honor for me to be here with you guys. I don't know if you're acutely aware of the fact that your ministry is changing hearts and lives all over the world. And it's bringing this picture of a Jesus-looking God. And it's bringing this picture of the upside-down kingdom to folks like me in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm here today as a podrishner with a testimony. And Revelations 12:11, it says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. And it's talking about believers and Satan here. It says they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And so I want to share a testimony with you today about how my renewed picture of God has radically impacted my experience of suffering. Because as Greg mentioned, I've experienced intense suffering and I still do. And yet I have this tremendous confidence in the loving heart of God. And as my recent crisis transpired, I could tell when it was his love that was materializing in front of me. And I could tell when it was his enemy at work. And last December, in my darkest moment, I fell into the loving arms of God instead of pushing him away. And that's because despite the pain that I was experiencing, I had this rock, solid understanding of God's goodness, thanks to my renewed picture of God, thanks to my new understanding of God's character and the use of his power. And this information, this renewed picture of God, it changed everything about my life. And it even changed how I confronted death. 
So before I share my testimony, I'd like to introduce you to my son, Henry. elementary school counselor when I found out that I was expecting Henry and my husband and I we had waited eight years to have a baby until I could stay home full-time and that's because I wanted to um, only be a mom ever that's all I ever wanted and so we waited eight years to have a baby and then Henry was my first baby 
So I left the counseling profession in May of 2008, and then in July, Henry was born. And being a mom, it was harder than I thought it was going to be, but it was much more amazing. And when Henry laughed, I just ached with love. And when he cried, I jumped to fix whatever was wrong. And he had all of that attention, all of mommy's attention for the first two years of his life until Miriam joined our family. And then he had to learn to share. But he loved his best friend. He called her Miwi. And he told her that she was the cutest girl. That year that Miriam was born, 2010, that was a challenging year for me. Because if you've had more than one baby, you'll know that the workload, it doesn't double. It just multiplies exponentially. (laughs) And so I found myself chasing two-year-old Henry all day and then nursing Miriam throughout the night. And I don't know if it's because I needed more adult interaction or what was going on, but I started listening to podcasts in the middle of the night. And I didn't know much about theology then. I knew that I was a Christian, and I knew that I was Protestant, but that was pretty much all I knew. And so as I look back on that time, I think it's so interesting because my iPhone had pastors had pastors on it from two different churches. And I didn't know much at the time about either pastor, just that they both had large churches and that they were good speakers. But as I look back, it's so interesting because one of those pastors holds the blueprint worldview. And so for those of you here at Woodland, you know that the blueprint worldview is the belief that God planned or pre-approved every event that humanity would experience from the foundations of time. So the view asserts that everything, good things and evil things, that they're all part of God's mysterious plan. They're all part of a divine blueprint that will glorify him best. The other pastor on my iPhone was Greg Boyd. And I told my husband one morning, after a long night of nursing and podcasts, I said, you know, the first pastor, he just seems to serve a God who's angrier than Greg's. And I just wanted to listen to Greg for a while because Greg kept insisting that God's heart for us was fully represented on Calvary. And deep down, I wanted that to be true. But that was more beautiful than I had ever dared to hope of God. I had some serious reservations about that because I had always subscribed to the blueprint worldview. But Greg, he kept insisting that hideous pain and that suffering, that they weren't part of God's ideal blueprint, but they rather resulted in the wills of free agents who can thwart the loving will of God. And so through Greg's teachings, I learned about the warfare worldview. And I learned a string of words that would forever change the way that I looked at God. Love, risk, rejection, and war. I learned that God's purpose in creation, it was to expand his love. Just like Ian and I, we wanted to expand our loving relationship to Henry and to Miriam. But that desire involved risk because God wanted a covenant relationship with a willing bride, not a robot. So he offered his creation a choice. They could choose love or reject love. And that risk, that was tremendous because the nature of granting freedom means that it just can't be revoked sporadically. Agents have to remain free, even if they become intent on harming one another or else they were never free to begin with. 
And so we know that in both the human and the angelic realms, there was a rejection of God's love. Adam and Eve, right? They chose pride over obedience. And scripture talks about a fall in the angelic realm as well. And so when that love was rejected, sin swept in. And that leaves us, humanity, on the front lines of a war zone. And I learned that for now, God doesn't always get his way. John's gospel reminds us that Satan is the ruler of the world. And other New Testament authors, they say Satan is the God of this age. And they warn us, they warn believers that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so I learned that the earth, our earth, it doesn't reflect God's original and his best intentions because instead it's ravaged by cosmic war. And this accounts for natural evils, natural evils like cancer and deadly tornadoes and death. And this is consistent with scripture showing us in the gospels, Jesus rebuking infirmities as coming from Satan and rebuking a violent storm at sea. But here's the bottom line. I learned that I was somewhat vulnerable while I walk on this earth. But that's because of a war that's resulted from a risk that was taken. And it was a risk taken by a good God and a hopeful God and a God who desires to share his infinite eternal love. So Greg pointed me through the scripture, through the lens of Calvary to a beautiful picture of God that my soul recognized. And so I didn't just swallow that. I spent a couple of years just prayerfully exploring all of my reservations, and I read Greg's book called Is God to Blame? And I gained a wealth of information, and I gained a truckload of healing, and I began to increasingly trust the heart of God, and I felt, I began to feel drawn to him. And I even tried, as Greg so often, and he just recently again recommended, imaginative prayer. And I once thought that I heard the Lord whisper that he was the lifter of my head. But I had no idea what that meant. So I was thankful that at least I was just growing confident in his love for me. And I was starting to just trust the pureness of his heart. Now, 2012, last year was a year that I needed that reassurance. Henry was approaching four and Miriam was approaching two and life was getting more and more intense. My relationship with God at this point was growing, but my little family, we were just struggling under the weight of illness and the stress that goes with that. Henry had four ear infections within the first few months of last year. And so we would give him antibiotics to clear up the ear infections, but those would just kill his appetite. So he would refuse food, and then he would just tremble, just slightly, from the low blood sugar. We thought that it was from the low blood sugar. When the ear infections cleared up, Henry cycled through four stomach viruses. And he was vomiting and sleeping a lot. We thought that they were stomach viruses. In June, the pediatrician did a full blood panel. Everything came back normal. And so we had this clean bill of health, but we were so frustrated and confused. And we thought, all right, we'll just do everything we can think of to keep Henry eating. Because if we can keep his blood sugar stable, maybe we can help his now fluctuating moods. 
And we had tubes put in his ears just to stop the ear infections and to stop using the antibiotics. And we just wanted him to feel better and to get back to the kid that we knew. I remember I was tucking him into bed one night after his ear surgery, and he said, Mommy, where did I come from? And I said, from my tummy, baby. And so he tucked his head down towards my stomach, and he said, time to go back. (laughs) And I laughed at his joke because I thought that he was joking. But now I think that he knew. The ear tubes seemed like they were unsuccessful because rather than getting better, Henry kept getting worse. And so it was on a Monday in mid-September, it was about a year ago now, we took him back to the pediatrician. And by now the trembling was really pronounced and he was so fatigued. And the pediatrician thought, well, maybe it's autoimmune. So he ran a bunch of blood tests and they were all negative. And he said, well, maybe Henry has a pinched nerve. So he ran a spinal, uh, he was going to do a spinal MRI. And he said, you know, we'll follow up with the neurologist just to be safe. But by the end of that week, the symptoms had intensified again. And Henry, he trembled so badly that he couldn't cross the playground equipment at our local park. And I just choked back the tears while his little sister just blew past him on the playground. Later, I got the kids home, and I got Miriam in the bath, and I begged Henry to use the potty. I'm his mommy. I knew that he had to go, but he refused, and then he wet himself on my bed, and I just melted down in that moment because I was so scared, and I was so stressed, and I was so frustrated with his stubbornness. Because I thought that it was his stubbornness. By the time that Ian got home from work, we decided to go to the children's hospital emergency room. And they gave us an exam room really quickly when we got there. But it was almost midnight when we got the news that our baby had a brain tumor. And when a pediatric neurosurgeon of 20 years has tears in his eyes. You know your life is about to change. Henry's poor appetite and his vomiting and the trembling and the incontinence and the question about where had he come from and the statement that it was time to go back. Suddenly that was all making a lot of sense. And so Henry underwent a six-hour craniotomy just four days later. And doctors were able to get 50% of that tumor, but they had to halt the surgery early because he lost three liters of blood. And that was enough to fill his entire little body. He spent the next two weeks in the PICU with anxiety that was just off the charts. And I remember I kept the music soft, and I kept the lights low, and I kept the sound on my phone off because he couldn't tolerate any sudden noises. And so that meant the shrill beeping of the hospital equipment and the constant employee foot traffic just kept us both on the brink of insanity. A frontal lobe brain tumor is a special kind of nastiness. Henry, he was so desperate for my quiet 
and my constant attention that he would melt down when I tried to speak to the doctors and he would scream inconsolably if I had to race to the restroom. One week into this and the biopsy results came back. Henry's tumor was highly aggressive and malignant. And we learned that with even the most aggressive and experimental treatments that his survival rate was very low and that the treatment process would just be grueling for him. And Henry was just maxed out. He just wanted to be four. And he just wanted to be whole. And he just wanted to go home. So after a lot of prayer and research and discussion, Ian and I, we had peace with just one option. 28 days after we brought Henry to the children's hospital emergency room, we took him back home with hospice care. And that was a decision that was lauded by medical professionals. They talked about the dignity that we were giving Henry, but boy, that was gut-wrenching for us. Thankfully, our community, they just rallied behind Henry. He was featured on the local news, and the local firefighters and the police officers, they came to meet him and to show him their big and shiny and loud vehicles. And he had family just come in from all over the country to be with him. And every day was like a party in our house. He was loving all the attention. And one local church, they felt led to come and surround our house and to petition the Lord for a miracle. And so hands were just lovingly laid on Henry. And fasts were engaged upon for Henry. And thousands were praying for Henry all over the country and all over the world, including right here at Woodland Hills. I called Mrs. Ruth Olson, and she told me that your prayer warriors stormed the gates of hell and that you would do so for Henry. So for a while, we hoped. Because as the recovery from his brain surgery progressed, he started to run and to play with Miriam again. His trembling went away, and his appetite was getting stronger, and his body was getting bigger. In just a month's time, we were amazed at all of his gaining and growing achievements. He looked good, and he looked strong, and we hoped. But I remember the morning <laughs> that the trembling returned. And it was just slight. At first, it was just a whisper <laughs> of what was to come. And we knew the nature of dying from a brain tumor. It means that sleep becomes more and more prevalent. I spent many hours next to my sleeping Henry but our family we have a we have a theory we think he was doing more than sleeping we think he was negotiating with Jesus and it wasn't because he was afraid to go because in his final months he really longed to be with Jesus we said honey you're not going to have any more pain in heaven and and you're going to be strong enough to run and to play and Jesus is going to take good care of you and so even though he really wanted to go, hesitation started to set in when his body caught up with his wishes. 
and transitions. They were never his strong suit. And so understandably, the transition from the earthly to eternity was met with resistance. But we believe that Jesus sat for hours with Henry, just patiently building trust about that upcoming transition and just just gently coaxing him ever closer. We think that because there were several times when Henry would wake up from a deep sleep and he'd say, Where's Jesus? And whoever was with him would say, well, he's right here with us, baby, always. And Henry would look around for Jesus. And he would look at me like, I don't see him. And then he would settle back into his pillow. And once I said, well, honey, were you just with Jesus? And he said, yes. And I said, well, where were you? And he said, with the stars. But it's daytime outside. He was disappointed because there was sunlight coming in our bedroom window, and he had this perceived distance from Jesus in their starry adventure. Another time, he sat up, and he was in the middle of a deep sleep. And with his little eyes closed, he said, I want to. And I just had this sense that I was eavesdropping on a supernatural conversation when he said, I want mommy to come too. His last words while he was awake were, I love you. But he was very weak. And so he kind of croaked them out through his broken and his fading strength. And then he fell asleep for a little while. But then he sat up in his sleep and he said his final words. And it was amazing because he said them with strength and with clarity and with joy. He said, that sounds like fun. And I like to picture him just looking out over this big crystal craft table filled with Play-Doh and gingerbread house supplies and everything he loved on this earth just magnified by the brilliance that only heaven could hold. He spoke those words around noon on December 16th. And even though it was early in the day, Ian and I, we were just already strung out and exhausted. And by the time the last visitor left, I remember just laying down beside Henry, and I put my arm underneath his pillow, and I I rested my head next to his. And the sound of his breath, they call it the death rattle, was deafening. The process of dying for him was not pleasant, and I remember just laying beside my baby, and with little else to do, I just imagined a dream that I had had from a few nights ago. It was about an escalator. And if you knew Henry, you knew that escalators trumped roller coasters. He could ride them for hours. And so I had dreamed about this giant escalator made of clouds, and it extended through the sky and past the stars and into heaven itself. And that sounds cliche, and I'm not saying that's metaphysically accurate, but it brought me a lot of comfort. And so as I'm laying beside Henry, I just imagined in prayer that Jesus and I, that we each took one of Henry's hands. And the three of us, we approached that cloudy ride together. But after Jesus reassured me several times, I let go. 
And I imagined Jesus just scooping up Henry. And he showed him the wonders of the earth and the stars and the universe as they ascended. And I imagined Jesus and Henry opened these big, opulent, amazing gates. And Jesus and Henry, they stepped into the most breathtaking landscape you can imagine. Because there were glassy beaches on their right and billowing meadows on their left and big purple towering mountains ahead. And the next thing that I remember was the hospice nurse. Because she was coming into our room with this look of alarm. Apparently, I had fallen asleep. And Henry never awoke. And the nurse could tell that his time was short. And the next few hours were so surreal. Ian and I, we could hardly grasp that Henry was actually dying. And I remember in one moment, we just were gripping one another. and We were crying and we were begging and we were pleading with God for peace and for strength. And afterwards, Ian said, you know, I don't even think Henry's here. I think his spirit left hours ago. And in that moment, friends, we were just flooded with peace. Because it was like this rush of heavenly air had just poured in the window and straightened our souls and we began to relax about caring for his little body while it shut down. Because we had this full confidence that he was already busy, that he was running and playing with Play-Doh and crafting with Jesus. Henry had found the strength to make that transition. And I like to think that it was when my arm was wrapped around him, imagining Jesus holding him on a giant escalator made of cloud. But Ian and I, we were on the ground, and we were focusing on the little body that was breaking down in front of us. And someone once told me, if things get too intense to pray, just say the name of Jesus over and over, and that'll be enough. On December 16, 2012, at 10.19 p.m., less than three months after learning about Henry's brain tumor, I started crying out to Jesus because my little boy had taken his last breath and secured his place with our Lord. I am so thankful <clears throat> that I had a renewed understanding of the heart of God before Henry's diagnosis. I am so thankful I could fall into those loving arms without reservation. Before I had based my picture of God completely on the crucified Christ, I didn't trust his heart. I thought that everything that happened, even children dying, was part of his picture-perfect plan. And I'm not the only one. This blueprint worldview, it's permeated our culture. And without my renewed understanding of the heart of God, I would have believed pastors who would say that God did this to Henry. I heard one pastor, a well-known Calvinist, share these thoughts and within his blueprint framework and consistent with his picture of God. He said, God gives life. And he takes life. Everyone who dies, dies because God wills that they die. And he said later, God decides when your last heartbeat will be, and whether it ends through cancer, 
or a bullet wound. And he said everything he does is just and right and good. God owes us nothing. But friends, that would mean that God willed for Henry to get brain cancer and die at just four years old and that it was just and right and good. Without my renewed understanding of the heart of God, I would have believed even the songs that play on my Christian radio that say that Henry's pain was God's mercy in disguise. My daughter and I, we keep hearing this chart-topping song called Blessings. Many of you have probably heard it. It's a beautiful song. But the lyrics, they say, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? But friends, we had many sleepless nights that preceded Henry's death. He would often wake with a sudden scream. And I don't know if the pain came from the tumor growing inside his brain or the pressure building inside his skull. But regardless, I would jump at all hours of the night and I would start wrestling through our miniature pharmacy of narcotics and tranquilizers and just trying to find that perfect cocktail to meet his scream, to answer my baby's pain without depressing his vital signs. Under hospice supervision, I worked under those crushing conditions every night until the cancer won. Am I to believe those sleepless nights were God's mercies in disguise? Now, friends, I don't question the sincerity of the hearts that propagate the blueprint worldview, but I question seriously the worldview being propagated. This blueprint worldview implies that God crushed Henry to mysteriously glorify himself. This view crushes people's passion for God. This view, it turns broken people away from the one who broke himself for them. And when I held this blueprint worldview, I didn't want to talk about God's heart, especially to people who were grieving because I thought he planned their pain to glorify himself. But friends, if we can't talk about the heart of God during life's darkest moments, when is the right time? This blueprint worldview doesn't look like Jesus. A God who plans our agony in detail to glorify himself doesn't look like Jesus. Our Jesus who healed the sick who raised the dead, who healed the ear. You remember of his arresting officer before he prayed for his assailant's forgiveness with his final breaths. It doesn't look like Jesus. And when it comes to our picture of God, when it comes to our understanding of God's role in suffering, shouldn't we start with the cross? Shouldn't we, like Paul, claim to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Shouldn't we, like the author of Hebrews, acknowledge that Jesus was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, the exact representation of God's being? Jesus himself, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes. So many Christians, they don't see God this way. 
I read an article recently, and it was on a prominent ministry's website. And this article was looking at God's role in suffering. And it used an author story analogy. I'm sure you've heard something similar somewhere during your life. This, this essay said, God is an author. The world is his story. We are the characters. And it later said that this paradigm provides soul-anchoring consolation, that the author of this story has good and wise purposes in writing his story in the way that he does. It said the blueprint worldview provides soul-anchoring consolation. Friends, if I had one thing to share with you today, this is it. I've been through hard things with a blueprint worldview, and I lost Henry. I went through the most excruciating pain of my life with this renewed picture of a Jesus-looking God. With this warfare worldview, there is no comparison. While I was losing Henry, my soul was anchored in a God whose heart I could trust. Instead of believing that God authored Henry's death, I knew that he worked creatively to bring about the most good possible while honoring the parameters, remember? Honoring the parameters of his beloved creation, a creation that's been granted irrevocable freedom. Instead of believing that God remained silent while Henry cried out because somehow this glorified him best, I knew that Jesus' ministry of healing truly represents God's heart toward disease. Instead of thinking that God just allowed Henry's death to teach me or to punish me, I was assured of his Calvary-like love for me. And I could say, this is from God. When we saw those little miracles, like, like those precious windows into Henry's transition process from my arms and into the Father's arms. And I could say, this is not from God. When crippling pain and disease and death came to my son, I knew that God's heart was broken. I knew that he had battled against the disease that ravaged Henry. Joseph Kelly, a remarkable child that God himself breathed into life. Friends, I saw God meet us in the pain, bring purpose to that pain so seamlessly that some would say, well, that pain was required to produce such beauty. No, friends, confidence in his Calvary-like love. It's not only anchored my soul, but it's unleashed a wellspring of passion that even death can't damper. So now, friends, instead of staring down at my shoes and fretting about this earthly path, this path that is now devoid of Henry, I've allowed God instead, as he once whispered in prayer, to become the lifter of my head. And I'm reminded that his purpose in creation, his pursuit of love, pushes past death. And it soars into eternity, providing the greatest consolation my soul has ever known. My earthly adventure with Henry has come to an end. But that's not this story's end. This story ends in an eternity with Henry and with our breathtaking Savior, a God who is unfailingly good and demonstrates unfailing love. Now, I've been blogging recently about this beautiful picture of God, and it's become a vehicle for me to beg people to wrestle now, today, with their picture of God. And that's because pain comes. 
loss comes. And I don't want anyone's earthly crisis to be compounded by a crisis of faith. But as I share, I'm learning two things. One is that some Christians, they don't want to hear this. And maybe for some, I'm throwing stones at the glass that is housing their security. Because there are folks who, like I always did, they find peace in the notion that God is controlling everything. That can be peaceful in certain situations. But I'm also hearing from broken people who just get this. And traumatized people who just soak this up. And they've told me that the blueprint worldview ceases to provide comfort when a hailstorm hits our glass house. Now I know about broken people who get this because they've been writing and sharing their testimonies with me. One woman, she wrote to say, I lost my father five years ago and I was so mad at God. I was so heartbroken that I lost my best friend and I was so confused why God would let him suffer. I now know that he didn't. Thanks to you sharing Greg's teachings and for the first time in five years, I'm without anger and resentment about my father dying and I want to thank you for that. Another woman wrote in to say, this has been the missing link for me. I couldn't imagine my God being a God who would inflict pain or suffering. I couldn't imagine horrible things being part of God's plan. And I'm now learning to see God as Jesus. That Jesus revealed what God is really like. And I'm realizing that spiritual warfare is real. I'm taking more seriously my responsibility and my privilege to help others, even when it may not be easy. I am finally free. And this last lady that I want to tell you about, she experienced more pain, more loss, more trauma than I can imagine. And she said, I stayed up all night crying, reading the blog and wondering, is it possible that my God loves me? Friends, we know that's possible. And if I could be the hands of Christ to each of you today, I would take my hands and place them alongside your face. I'd look into your eyes and I'd say, he loves you. No matter how deep your pain may be, he's not abandoned you. Pain and suffering are not his ideal will for you. He loves you. His love was most beautifully demonstrated when he was broken on a cross. And his love was most powerfully demonstrated when he triumphed over death. And that beautiful, powerful love seeks you. And it surrounds you. And it wants to fill you to overflowing. He loves you. Do you remember where we started? With Revelation twelve eleven, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. This is my testimony, friends. Of his tremendous love for you and for me. He loves us. He's perfect. I want to ask you to pray with me. And as I pray, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you are having pain and suffering, I would ask that you come to these folks and let them lift you up. They're just precious. And I would ask you to remember to sign up for the refuge out at the hub. Dear Jesus, thank you for your tremendous love. Thank you for your arms that are safe 
Father, give us the courage to wrestle with anything that doesn't match up with this beautiful Jesus-looking God. Give us freedom. Give us hope. Give us healing. Reveal to us this beautiful picture of you. And we ask for the courage to share our testimonies and to share your love with a broken world. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you.